Okay, live from Las Vegas. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so can you describe uh, your role at Oracle, please, for the people listening? That's what my wife keeps asking me. <laughs> in any case, so I, I'm, I'm responsible for product management and product strategy for the uh, EPM business at Oracle. Um, EPM, as you probably know, is sort of now expanding um, in a couple of dimensions. One is, uh, it's not just about EPM. We are sort of intentionally making the lines between EPM and ERP fluid in certain areas. So my role is sort of expanding beyond just what we used to call as EPM traditionally. And secondly, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, EPM is now not just about finance. It's also about some other operating functions like sales and marketing and human resources and so on especially as it relates to the planning area. So the role has been, the last few years, it's been broadening beyond what used to be traditional EPM. Uh, so that's, uh, that's actually the fun part. So before we get into the future of EPM, let's talk a little bit about the past. How did you get involved with an EPM? With EPM. So I, uh, I'm, I'm not from Hyperion. I'm not, one of the, I'm not like Matt Bradley. I did not start my career at Hyperion or I did not work at Hyperion. I, I came into Oracle. Um, I came into Oracle through an acquisition about 10, 10 or so years ago. That was a time when um, we were starting to sort of make plans for uh, delivering EPM applications in the cloud. So to me, that seemed like a very meaty opportunity to sort of get in and sort of, uh, uh, you know, put your thumbprints on the strategy around uh, the next phase of EPM at Oracle, right? So that's how I got, got involved with EPM. Uh, Ten years ago, we started planning for it. And as you probably know, you know, eight and a half years ago or so is when we first launched EPM in the cloud. Uh, so I've been there for much of the cloud action. Okay. So um, so talk a little bit about the cloud and how the applications evolved since eight and a half years ago or so when you first released the cloud products versus now. So even from the beginning, it may not have been obvious uh, uh, from our strategy of, uh, from our sort of uh, process of rolling applications out. Um, from the beginning, we always thought of EPM as a suite. We conceptualized EPM as a suite. We said, look, we're going to deliver a suite of applications or a suite of uh, business processes, whatever you want to call them, on a common platform. But obviously, you know, we didn't want to deliver all of them all at once because then we would have delivered them in 2018, not in 2014. So we said, we're going to roll them out, you know, sort of uh, in a phased manner. But the eventual vision always was uh, a suite of applications built on a common platform designed to work together uh, with the boundaries across these business processes being intentionally fluid. That, that's how we always thought of it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but, you know, a little bit of background on how we thought about that. I mean, we started with planning. Uh, we started with planning and then we added reporting. We added consolidation, as you know. You know, we sort of kept expanding the footprint over time. And the pricing model initially, um, we could not make a pricing model that was in line with the uh, eventual vision because the pricing model has to map to the reality of what we are delivering, not sure. the vision of what we want to deliver. So initially, we uh, went with the application-based pricing model. But once we filled out the suite, we sort of switched over to the suite-based pricing model, which is what is there right now, and which I think is the right model for EPM. Because in fact, the, the product delivery as a suite, the pricing as a suite, sort of is lockstep with our strategy for what we want to deliver in the market, some of what's different about us versus competition, and some of where the key value for our customers comes from going with us as opposed to uh, a different solution, which, is, uh, which has a narrow footprint. 
So what are you noticing in terms of how the approach to implementing the suite for the customer has changed? How do they prioritize? Where do they begin? How has the, how have those conversations evolved? So um, you know this, uh, planning is undoubtedly the killer application with an EPM, right? There's no, there's no question about it. Um, you know, if I look at the on-premises days, uh, the planning uh, business and the consolidation business were of relatively similar sizes, but I think planning has uh, run away, um, way ahead. Um, so planning is the killer app. So not a surprise that many of our customers, even if they have a full footprint vision, they want to start with planning. And where they start in planning is a function of uh, the customer's business priorities, their urgency of need, and so on. Many customers start with uh, corporate financial planning, but some don't. Some customers say, you know what, I've got my, uh, there are cases where customers say, you know what, I've got my corporate financial planning application working well on-premises. I want to leave it alone. I want to go do this divisional financial planning app in the cloud first, or I want to do even a non-financial planning app, such as sales operations planning or sales forecasting in the cloud first. So we see flavors of that, but predominantly financial planning is where many of our customers start. Uh, and also, you know, as you know, FP&A tends to be a little more risk tolerant compared to the controller's office. Uh, so we seldom see uh, consolidation as the first app out of the gate. Uh, most of the time it's planning, sometimes it's reporting. Um, you know, people take uh, a bunch of their S-base cubes and say, you know what, I want to move them to the cloud. And in that process, uh, they sometimes replicate exactly what they did on-premises. In many cases with input from, uh, you know, partners like yourselves, people are open to rationalizing or reimagining what they did on-premises in the cloud. So we see a lot of that. What are some of the considerations that go into creating that type of a roadmap for a customer whether or not they should lift and shift or whether or not they should re-engineer their processes. My advice to customers is always, you know, don't start with the mentality that I'm going to lift and shift unless X, Y, or Z. Always think about, I'm going to reimagine my processes unless, I mean, the fallback, the, the last resort should be lift and shift because look, planning applications or consolidation applications, the reporting applications built 10 or 20 years ago, they were built for a time, they were built for a set of requirements, they were built for a business context. All of that has changed. Um, so in fact, uh, when we talk about what is different about us versus competition, one of the key differences is our vision for the future of finance. The, we have a lot of competitors, you know, one stream in particular who will go back to our customers and say, oh, let's take what you did in consolidation 15 years ago and move that to the cloud in our, using our cloud solution. We think that's fundamentally the wrong approach. I mean, it may, it may be a quick win. You may get an application up and running in six or nine months and everybody will clap for a while, but you've not done the right thing for the business. Because, you know, the business is moving forward. The business context of today is nothing like the business context of, let's say, 2002. Uh, the finance function today should not be thinking like it did 20 years ago. They should be looking ahead. In fact, if you look at strategy consultants like McKinsey, what they are talking about in terms of the future of finance, we agree with a lot of uh, what McKinsey says in this area, for instance. They're saying things like, you know, look, raise the level of automation. What has been done manually over the last 20 years should not be done manually over the next five years, leave alone the next 20 years, right? And they're saying, uh, Finance is not just about bookkeeping. Finance is about collaborating with other business functions and driving critical business decisions. 
And they're saying finance is about leveraging data, not just financial data, but a combination of financial and operational data to drive the right decisions for the business. We agree with a lot of that. And if you want to reimagine the finance, finance function along those lines, you should not be lifting and shifting uh, applications that you built or designed and conceived and built 20 years ago. You should be fundamentally rethinking them. So my advice to customer, customers every time is, unless you have a really legitimate set of constraints that force you to lift and shift for a tactical reason, don't do it. Think about, rethink what you did. Think about, okay, uh, maybe I thought of planning as budgeting 20 years ago, but today, can you think about planning as a competitive advantage over your competitors in your industry? How can I deliver business value through the planning process? For, for example, you know, what we all went through in the last two, three years right. where you know, things shifted and everybody had to um, plan to not just one set of assumptions to multiple set of assumptions. Going forward, that sort of scenario-based planning should be a best practice, a fundamental best practice in how companies think about uh, planning. So if you're not doing that today as part of your move to the cloud, you're missing a big opportunity. Well, almost every industry has been shaken up in the past few years, to your point, right? And so what we've noticed specifically with SAP and OneStream customers is that they'll take an annual operating plan where they were doing cost center planning only and lift and shift that to the cloud, no matter what tool they're using yep. in the future, whether it's OneStream or another tool. Yep. Um, what are some of the differences that EPM customers are doing and how they're deploying their projects versus just typical AOP cost center planning? You mentioned scenario modeling and the long-range forecast, the what-if analysis. Are there any other um, offerings within the EPM suite for planning that customers are leveraging? A few major differences. You know, planning to a, a variable set of assumptions, scenario-based planning is, has become, I think, I think it's become a best practice over the last few years. I don't think people are going to go back to how they did this. Uh, I think that's going to stick um, because, you know, as you know, for years we were evangelizing, you know, scenario-based planning. It did not take off. Uh, it took a crisis like what we went through the, in the last few years for that to stick. But I think it's going to be a best practice going forward. The other things to your question are that emerging best practices, like, for instance, take something simple like variance analysis. All of us are used to doing, you know, forecast versus actuals or plan versus actuals uh, variance analysis. Um, that's backward looking fundamentally. It's very useful. It sort of tells you, okay, where did you go wrong? And sort of asks you uh, together with operating functions to analyze why you sort of deviated from your plan. Um, and what are the factors that led you that kind of thing? It's useful. But I think what's even more useful is the emerging best practice of doing three-way comparisons where you're doing actuals versus human forecast versus machine prediction. So using machine learning-based predictions that leverage data that you have and that can look at patterns in data that human beings are not very good at looking at, and then generating a prediction using that, and on an ongoing basis comparing uh, the human forecast to the machine prediction to see what's doing better. Maybe for certain line items, uh, human beings are better at doing it because there is business context may be the most important element there, not so much the uh, patterns in data or the seasonality or variability. But there are a lot of line items, whether it's in your uh, income statement or in a, on your balance sheet, the machine uh, learning algorithms can do a much better job of predicting compared to human beings because they're not subject to biases. They're much better at picking up, you know, 
hidden uh, sort of patterns in data that human beings are not trained to look at, right? Um, so this best practice of comparing actuals to human forecast to machine prediction is something I think uh, that companies are going to do more and more of. And there are certain line items where they'll automate the forecast using the machine prediction. And there are certain line, line items where they'll say, you know what, machine does a good job, but I'm going to sort of hybridize this, combine the machine prediction adjusted with human judgment. And there are certain areas where they'll say, you know what, there's too much business context here. I'm going to let the human beings drive the forecast. So we'll, we'll get to that stage. I think that's, a, that's a, an emerging best practice that many of our customers are looking into. Go ahead, you were asking. So is this a feature or capability that customers can take advantage of immediately? Or do they need a certain you know, number of cycles of you know, gathering that information and you know, the machine really consuming that information before they can take advantage of these types of insights? Uh, the very good set of questions. I mean, there is a set of questions in what you just asked. Uh, I mean, people sort of take a look at, okay, machine learning, predictive analytics, whatever you want to call it. They say, yeah, this is great, but where do I get started? And uh, do I have enough data? Do I have enough sophistication inside my company to take advantage of this? I and mean, one of the things that we are doing that is fundamentally different is we want finance people to use um, the machine learning capabilities in the context of financial planning, in the context of financial forecasting. Uh, what we are building is not for data scientists, it's really for finance people. The fundamental difference, right? I mean, I can throw um, a Google forecast algorithm or an AWS forecaster algorithm at somebody and say, go generate your predictions. But how many people in finance are comfortable with this? I mean, it'll come up, the first set of questions it'll ask you is, what algorithm do you want to use? I have no idea, you know, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to do, I want to use. So I want, so what the way we are building this is really the system will look at the shape of the data, the amount of data you have, what that looks like, and then pick the right algorithmic choices for you. Um, yes, as you go up in sophistication, you can override some of those choices or fine tune some of those choices, but to get started should be very simple, number one. So I think forecasting is often a good uh, first uh, sort of problem in the use of machine learning, but not always. I mean, there are people that start in other areas uh, related to operating expenses, for example, you know, travel expenses, you know, pre-COVID at least. Uh, travel expenses could be, and post-COVID also, during COVID, it was very easy to forecast travel expenses, zero, <laughs> zero. <laughs> right? Uh, but right. anyway, travel expenses as a line item, for example, is very amenable to sort of uh, uh, machine learning or data-based modeling. So pick easy items like that. Uh, what, what I always sort of suggest to customers is don't just uh, uh, pick one area, pick a couple of areas, a uh, couple of line items for machine learning based predictions. And also don't set the bar impossibly high. You know, what some of my customers do is, okay, my human being, my human forecaster with all his or her collective years of experience is able to forecast with 75% accuracy, let's say. The minute I say I'm building a machine learning model to predict that line item, they, ex they expect 95% plus. If I deliver 85%, they say, oh, this is a failure. I improved it by 10 percentage points over your human forecaster, but people keep expectations unrealistically high. So what I tell them is, you know, keep expectations realistic. Um, pick, pick two or three areas and get people involved. Get the finance people involved. Don't just give it to a data scientist and have them go build an experiment on this. Get finance people involved. That's when you get, you build expertise, you build familiarity. You also build trust and confidence in what the machine learning model is doing. Because at, at the end of the day, 
finance people are different than marketing people. Marketing people, you know, since Google over the last 20 years, uh, they've gotten very comfortable with black box sort of models. So if I give a marketing prediction, uh, the marketing guy is more willing to accept a black box model. But as finance people are, show me. I need to understand the model. I need to understand not just what it is doing, but why it's doing it. So one of the things that we are doing to create that trust and confidence with finance people is this concept of explainability. So we not only build a model that is good at prediction, we also build models that are good at explaining why they predicted what they predicted in in terms that uh, human beings can understand. So we'll say, these are four factors that went into the prediction that I made. And this is the dominant one. This is the second most important one. This is the third most important one. And that may change over time, right? Uh, My pricing may be the most important predictor of demand in one situation. The macroeconomic condition may be the most important factor in predicting demand under a different set of circumstances. So at a given point in time, when I make a prediction using the model, the model will say, these are the factors in relative order of importance. And the finance guy takes a look at it and he's, he or she will say, yeah, that makes sense. And if it makes sense, you accept it. If it doesn't make sense, then you say, you know what, you go to a data scientist and say, you know what, this is not making sense. There's something off here. Let's talk about it. So that sort of thing. Sorry about the long answer, but no, you know, no, hopefully it gives you a... Uh, I think the, clarifying that that why, you know, that also helps uh, the, the planner, right, understand what they're missing. Maybe something was buried. And so I think that helps the future planning processes and sophistication going forward, right? So this sounds like a lot of innovating, innovative technology. Are other companies doing this as well as some of your competitors? Or is this something that only Oracle's doing? I think, you know, AI and machine learning are so fundamentally important. Every company is working on it, to be honest with you. There's there's not a competitor, there's not a vendor in this space that's not working on it. But I think what it comes to is really, um, a lot of these technologies require a certain scale of investment. Um, at Oracle, we are fortunate in that the investment in AI and machine learning and predictive technologies that we are making is not just limited to the EPM business. Oracle as a whole is making placing really large bets on these technologies. We have, you know, hundreds of people working on these technologies across the company. Uh, So we are able to tap into the work that is being done by the data science team at Oracle, by the database team at Oracle, or by other teams at Oracle. So the scale of investment that we're making is really what makes the difference. So, I mean, in simple terms, we are out investing the competition in this area, and it takes a certain scale of investment to do the kind of things that we're talking about. This is why some of our competitors in the EPM space, if you look at what they're doing, they're going and OEMing a forecasting algorithm from a third party and building it into their, uh, they're calling it from their system. People can do that, but the things that I talked about in terms of uh, the sophistication, that the, the technical sophistication that makes the process very simple for the finance user will be missing in those approaches. The explainability kind of concepts will be missing there. So that's why, that's what separates us. Not everybody will have slideware on AI and machine learning and predictive planning and all of that. So my advice to customers always is look beyond the slideware and see what it is that they're doing and whether your people in finance will be able to leverage what they're doing in a meaningful sort of way in their work. That's where the difference is. So you need to look beyond the two slides on AI and machine learning and dig a little deeper to sort of look at the difference. Right. Not just another uh, LinkedIn buzzword, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you foresee um, AI and machine learning connecting across business processes? So eventually, right, you always talk about the depth and breadth of the EPM suite. So then how do you see it evolving as we go beyond planning into reconciliations, close, and then beyond, right? Yeah. yeah. I think we always talk about uh, machine learning use cases and planning because those are easy to talk about. And those are some customers can very easily understand that. But you're right. There are many use cases for AI, machine learning, and predictive technologies outside of uh, the planning and forecasting areas. For instance, in reconciliations, we think you know we have a you know a transaction matching uh, process where you can do rules based automation of certain types of uh, reconciliations. But I think what we want to do is you know okay, let's look at the subset of cases where human uh, you know clerical staff or accounting staff are coming in and making reconciliations uh, manually. Uh, we want algorithms to sort of understand what they're doing manually. So over time, a growing subset of those can be reconciled automatically using these algorithms. They may not be able to codify what they do in terms of a simple rule, but if you observe what they're doing using machine learning uh, technologies, we'll be able to capture that and then translate that into um, algorithms that can automate that. That's a, that's a very important set of use, use cases there. The second thing, you know, even in um, um, the same kind of principle can be applied even in the consolidation close process. So there is a set of manual adjustments that people make as part of the close process. If learning algorithms observe what adjustments are being made, and if we can find patterns in the adjustments being, being made, a growing subset of those adjustments as part of the close process can be automated. I mean, the theme here, as you can see, is can we find ways to automate what people are doing today so that we can free up people to do higher value-added work, right? That exists in reconciliation, that exists in the financial close process. In fact, the other day I was talking to some of our developers in the financial consolidation area. What they want to do is they want to observe across multiple deployments of the financial consolidation application and pick up best practices and apply them and suggest them, recommend them. Uh, this is nothing to do with the consolidation process. This has to do with application design. So they want to look at, okay, this system is performing really well and this system is not. Can I study, and it's not, they're not just studying one system, dozens of systems that are performing well and a few that are not performing well. So if I can pick up elements of what makes this go better and suggest it to the ones that are not doing well, that's, so application design has some interesting use cases as well. So there's a lot of opportunities here that go well beyond planning. We just talk about planning because it's very easy to explain. There was something you mentioned in your introduction, um, just shifting gears a bit, about some of the overlap uh, between ERP and EPM. And just thinking about these forward-looking technologies, what is that overlap? Is that due to some of these, you know, forward-looking, um, you know, features and capabilities? Is it something else? I feel like you threw that nugget in there and I wanted to unpack that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So good question. So a couple of things, right? You know, I think when we look to the future of finance, a lot of the uh, transaction processing work that is currently being done with uh, manual guidance in the ERP system is going to get automated. So we call it touchless processing. We call it automated processing. You know, pick your term. But I think touchless transaction processing is going to be a reality. A lot of what ERP does today using manual labor is going to get automated. It's already happening, but I think increasing sets of transactions will get automated. Things like data input, data entry. and okay. Data entry, reconciliations, you know, adjustments, a lot of that stuff will happen automatically, right? Um, and then the action shifts to not just doing this transactional work, but 
what can we learn from these transactions? Where are the insights? How can we impact decisions using these insights? That's very much the territory of EPM. So this is where the blending of ERP and EPM will start to happen. Um, and then things like, for example, there is a lot of action in the ERP leading up to the financial consolidation close process. If a lot of that gets automated, then you're looking at a much more heavily automated consolidation close process. And there, the lines between what happens in ERP, what happens in EPM start to blur, right? Um, so those are some of the things. We, we think the action in finance is going to shift from transaction processing to things like, you know, collaboration, things like picking up insights and making decisions and taking action on them. And taking action is where the collaboration comes in. So if you look at themes for finance as a whole, I think it's going to be around automation. It's going to be around intelligence. It's going to be around collaborative action. So when you sort of paint the picture broadly like that, I think what's EPM doing, what's ERP doing, at some level, you don't care. As long as we are sort of automating the transactional work, picking the right insights and delivering them to the right people and driving the right decisions, not only in finance, but across the company. And that's where the, the, the sort of the uh, merger or the blending of EPM and uh, ERP will sort of drive finance forward. So the goal is just to have one Oracle login page that you go to and search just like Google at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that, that's a topic for another conversation. I think we have some ideas there. We're working on some ideas there, but uh, yeah. Well, thank you so You're much. You're not too far off. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hari, for coming in uh, and uh, talking to us about this. This is really exciting stuff. And we're here at Cloud World all week, so hope to run into you again. Um, but um, this, is, uh, this is perfect. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you both. 